Welcome to this special edition of Sitka Tells Tales. It's cold and dark, a writer's share. I'm Ellen Frankenstein, host and wrangler, and I'm here with Brooke Schaefer. We've been thinking about winter solstice, looking forward to more light and more stories. We're also changing it up, playing a bit with the way we create and share stories. In this episode, we'll hear from local writers in Sitka. This is a new collaboration for Sitka Tales Tales with Writers Read, and one we hope will continue. So welcome to Cold and Dark. Yes, definitely one we hope to continue. Uh, Writers Read began about a decade ago as a chance for writers to experience sharing their own work with an audience. Many art forms are solitary experiences, and writing is no exception. In our small island town, there aren't many opportunities for writers to read their work aloud and connect with an audience. So Writers Read was born to create that space and opportunity for writers. So now it's time to hear five local writers looking to do just that, share their art with you tonight. We'll be hearing poems and essays and other forms of writing from Catherine Klusmeyer, Manoj Batar, Ruth Underhill, Zach Schaefer, and Brendan Jones. Our first writer is Catherine Klusmeyer. Catherine Klusmeyer is a writer living in Sitka, Alaska. She has a master's in medical anthropology from the University of Oxford and is currently pursuing her MFA in creative writing at the University of Iowa, where she is an Iowa Arts Fellow. Catherine is a 2021 Pushcart Prize winner, a winner of the 2018 MIT Media Lab Resisting Reduction Essay Prize, and the 2016 recipient of the Crazy Horse Creative Nonfiction Prize. Her work can be found in Against Reduction, Designing a Human Future with Machines, published by the MIT Press. Welcome, Catherine. Klusmeyer, and this is a piece that was published last year in the journal called Agni. And this is an excerpt from a book project that I've been working on for a long time. It's actually the book project that brought me to Sitka as an artist in residency in the first place. Um, and I'm just going to read a little section of it. I'm a good fish killer. It's almost mechanical now, this day-in, day-out, all-summer-long cycle of hauling fish from the murky depths and gutting them. I rarely have to think about the physical act of harvesting a fish anymore. I can clean a salmon in seconds. I can do it with my eyes closed. I can remove their intestines and pump the blood from their veins and scrape the kidneys from their backbone with a long metal spoon, even when the winds are blowing 40 knots, even when the waves send sprays over the rail and into my eyes. 
I can do it on the days when I can't feel my fingers anymore. They're so achy, so frigid, so clammy. Still, years into this work, there are things that I now know, memories I've accumulated, a knowledge I have stored up inside of me that I'm not sure I'd say out loud in certain company. For instance, I have now seen nearly all the ways a fish can die. I've seen scores of big, fat fish who die with a long thunk. I've seen countless small, bloody ones who fight and rebound and ricochet like boomerangs. I've had fish slap me across the face right before they die. I've taken tail shots to the stomach, to my breast. I've had them bite me and then die mid-bite. I'm always seeing hooks in places I wish I hadn't. Hooks through gills, hooks sliced through soft underbellies so the fish bleed out and die slowly. Hooks through the eyes. I'm constantly scraping off the remains of eyeballs that have been skewered like kebabs on the bends of our hooks. They're surprisingly difficult to remove, much hardier and substantial than you'd imagine. I've pulled up fish that were so close to spawning that when I grab their bodies to place them in the cleaning trough, their creamy milt explodes from our bellies and sprays all over the runny innards of a great popped pimple launched at my open mouth. I've seen fish I thought were long gone, fish whose hearts and eggs I've already stripped away and tossed into the sea appear to come back to life. Sometimes, and it can be 20 minutes after I gut it, I'll toss a fish into our giant slush tank and it will hit the ice and start moving again. It'll start swimming, furiously swimming. Long after they've died, their giant caudal fin will hit the cold water and start to pulse back and forth, plunging deeper and deeper into the ice. Sometimes I'll be standing with my knife in the cockpit, the hollowed-out space in the stern of the boat where we land and clean our catch, preparing to toss another one onto the pile when the lid on the hold will start shaking, pulsing up and down, drumming as a dead fish tries to swim to the bottom of the tank. To be clear... These fish are dead. Still, the minute they hit that ice water, they start to move again. At my most sentimental, my mind wants to add some meaning to all this, like somehow their bodies know they're not supposed to be up here above the water, like somehow their silver scales can sense home long after their minds have given out. Other times, I'm too tired. This is usually on the days when we rise at 2 a.m., when our tanks are full to the brim with fish when I have stared at all the wind and all the rain that I have any desire to be a part of. On those days, all I want is for the fish to go quietly into the tank. They never do, of course. And the more I kill fish, the less inclined I am to accept that there's some firm line separating the dead from the living. The more I kill fish, the blurrier this whole business gets. There's one morning in particular that I just keep coming back to. It was just past dawn, early during my first season. Eric and I had been catching kings steady for hours. I was standing alone in the cockpit. A thin layer of salt had already dried on the corners of my eyelids. Every time I blinked, it was like having tiny crumpled up pieces of tissue paper stuck to my face. And when I looked down at my feet, as I routinely do to check the water levels in the cockpit for flooding... I saw something I had never seen before, something that made me drop my cleaning knife so it landed just beyond my big toe. On the floor of the cockpit, arranged in a semicircle at my feet, were hearts, eight severed salmon hearts, to be precise. Even now, I don't know how they got there. Somehow, 
I suppose I had failed to toss all eight of those hearts overboard that morning, and they'd found a home on the cockpit floor. But that wasn't what surprised me. What surprised me is that they were still pulsing, every single one of those hearts. They were moving, each one encapsulated in its own tiny individual red pool at my feet. Without thinking much about it, I reached down with gloved hands and picked them up, one after the other after the other, and placed them in a line on the wooden deck rail overlooking the sea. Each heart was only about the size of a small clementine, each one the picture of vulnerability sitting there on that railing, continuing to contract as if its body were still whole. Perhaps it was curiosity that caused me to place them on the rail like that. All I know is that I stood there for many long minutes, three, four, six, before the last of the hearts stopped and went still. Thank you, Catherine. You are tuned into a special edition of Sitka Tells Tales, featuring local writers and poets here on KCAW. Our next writer is Manoj Batar. Manoj began writing poetry four years ago, prior to the start of physical therapy school, when he was on the front end of an extended out west road trip. He remembers taking a nap in Arches National Park and awakening to an inspiration to write poems, and since then has run with the art form. Initially, his writing reflected the seemingly timeless landscape. As his writing evolved, he focused on human behavior, healing, and spirituality. Now, his primary interest is playfully exploring the constructs which we live in and how they shape the diverse human experience. He's interested in how those factors correlate to the health and contentment for one and all. The other focus of his poetry is on the art of basketball and his dope dog, Rishi. My name is Manoj, as I was just introduced. I am doing some poetry reading, poems about cold and dark. This is my writer's share. The first one is untitled. We die every moment. As seconds pass, we get no second pass. Afforded at least the opportunity to learn. We are reborn anew in those same moments, on those same deathbeds. We are granted the opportunity to apply what we learned. And tell me, do you go in peace? And when you arrive, is it in peace still? This next one is called Relax. And if anybody out there is a Packers fan, I spelled it all out in caps lock for the ten of you on this island. 
You know what it means. Every second does not need to be some part of some intense race to make the world a better place. You must also relax, allowing for some quiet, for these are the moments your mind can tell you best that you are not doing enough to make the world a better place. Married to your unhappiness and health and sickness, your vows stay true. Till death do you part. Send it. It was too late for faint-heartedness. A single sentence, when read, years ago etched itself into the fibers of my being, weaving the papers of the tomes defining me. It caught me in a peculiar way. I didn't know at the time the significance, nor the significance of the timing, and the contractual pertinence to each succeeding day. I find myself worrying about my rate of growth, about overextending, burning out, worrying about keeping my head above water, often from the safety of this boat I have built. It is too late now for faint-heartedness. This last poem is a poem from one of the best days I had in Sitka. And you all know about the nature we have here, obviously, much better than me, probably most of you. It's called a preposition for perspective. Looking at them, the mountains feel small. Smaller than they are, and I seem large, larger than I am. It is no coincidence that looking out from them, atop them, within the forest, upon the ocean, and in the skies, that perspectives change. Thank you. Thanks for your poems, Manoj, and thank you for tuning in to this presentation of Writers Read and Sitka Tells Tales. Next, let's welcome Ruth Underhill. Ruth Underhill earned a master's in creative writing from Vermont College of Fine Arts. Ruth is also a nurse manager at the Sitka Pioneer Home, where she enjoys working with Sitka's finest population, who never judge her poor dance skills and sometimes even dance with her. Ruth owns two small businesses, one supporting childbirth education and the other promoting writing. You can find a piece of Ruth's writing on paston.com or in her file cabinet at home, where she still hoards most of her words. Be still, love still. You're confused and it's just no good. My name's Ruth Underhill, and I'm going to read a variety of pieces. The first one 
is something that I sent to my niece Violet in Cincinnati, Ohio, when we were exchanging stories just in snail mail as a response to her telling me that she loves to write, but she can never write the end of a story. So this is one little piece I sent her without an ending, and she sent me stories back that were similar. This piece is inspired by living in a dry cabin up in Fairbanks for a little while last year. So there's a lot of interior Alaska winter in it. The girl sat on a large frozen trash bag as she peered onto the street through the long crack between the two doors of the trash hutch. Last week, the hutch did not have any doors, but her landlady grew tired of the ravens strewing trash from the cabins across the frozen street. She told her husband to make doors, and he did. The girl sat behind them now. She could see just enough by holding one door slightly ajar. Moonlight, street lamps, and beyond that, rainbow-colored twinkly lights on the cabin roofs. These all illuminated her view of two men in lumpy winter jackets hunched over a car trunk across the street. The car had been parked there since August, and it was now the deep, dark, frozen month of February. The trunk was open, but she could not see what they were looking at inside. Was it something illegal? Probably. She ran through the options in her mind. Cash, drugs, a body, a stowaway? She wasn't sure about anything except for the one important fact that they must not see her. She had realized that the moment the taller man with a leather cap whirled around at the sound of her boots squeaking in the sub-zero yard of her cabin lot. He moved like a man on edge, a feral cat or a deeply disturbed brown bear. She had climbed into the trash hatch just in time as the beam of his smartphone flashlight ripped through the darkness where she had stood just a few seconds before. Breathe out, she coached herself. She realized she was hyperventilating and fainting would only turn their attention back to her if she fell out of the trash hutch. As the girl began to exhale again, the men continued to speak in hushed tones, audible but indecipherable. She leaned out, cracking the trash hatch door open just a few more millimeters, curiosity at war with her fear. Then it happened. Over the murky gray six-month-old snow and ice, a low hum and unseasonably green hue spread. The twinkly lights from the cabin seemed to not be twinkling from the cabin anymore, but somewhere higher. Looking away from the men and at the sky for a moment, she saw the northern lights appear. The green lights began to dance down in tight circles. Down, down, down. They did not encircle the men with their rushed whispers and shifty sideways glances. Instead, the lights were dropping down around her, and it felt as if she were drawn up into the Arctic sky, if only for a moment. Then suddenly it was over. The lights were gone. The silence returned. The men had vanished, and so had that car. She knew it was gone because she could see the outline of snow and ice around its parking spot. Then her phone rang. So that's the little without an ending piece. And this next one is some sort of a flash essay or a poem, whichever genre you want to put it in. 
And it was inspired by one afternoon last year at Halibut Point Rec Park after an autumn storm. Halibut Point. It isn't blue skies, but the way light plays with the clouds. Mist weaves and sifts through spruce along mountains in tracks that mimic ravens. Lifting by dozens across the layered sky while surf underlines this pattern. And I see forest respiration as a working loom. A man with one wheelbarrow and then a woman motions to fill it with kelp. We are here after the storm. I take a leather scrap, a boot sole rimmed in crimpage holes from someone I would have loved or just a shoe dropped overboard. I know. Leftover raindrop seals the bottom of a huckleberry. More hangs along lines of moss high and forest eaves. Roots the shape of squid or rosehip on stilts reach through moss for their grip of land. I am drawn to driftwood and the way it breathes where sunlight draws an exhale. The most pleasing piece is in front of me and I tuck it under my right arm. A pillar solid after falling stray from the forest, on sunk mountain, on whaleback, under lone kayak, standing for a moment as wave shot puts it ashore and soft lights glisten over diminutive shadows. A mushroom kissing earth with neon lips, varnished orange under logs splintered open, the way they decompose in proximity, bright cedar shards, more sponge than knife on top of mossy earth and steady fern, and scattered pine cones, soft enough to eat or let a baby hold. I am stuck in the shock of this place like unexpected touch or gaze. Clouds dangle. A jellyfish full with tentacles low over clear rivers, blue where the sky lifted skirts. Breathe in part ocean, part sky, part moss and ancient tree. Walk until two crows swoop up, Touch chest to chest, their feet tiptoe, then reverse when wings arch back. Synchronized ulu blades so soft, they do not cut anything but the light. So this next piece is part of a very long essay I've been working on for five years, inspired by 16 years of work as an obstetric nurse. And the cliche about being a birth nurse is it's very happy, and it often is, but there are tough, poignant parts, including caring for families during miscarriage and loss. So this essay deals with that. And I just want to make a very clear trigger warning. This may not be something everybody is comfortable listening to, because there is very clear imagery. And it does discuss the topic of losing uh, pregnancy or an infant. It's called the impossible weight. These babies stay with me for years. I have gazed at lost infants through camera lenses long before understanding why we photograph dead children. I understand now. The photographs prove an important existence. They buffer the ache of a parent's unrequited love. Defend against a world that will never offer crinkly packages of school photos, baptism photos, wedding photos, photos of their child grinning behind a birthday cake. Some parents go home without photographs, but we save them, knowing there will almost always be a request soon for every available memory. 
I have sunk their feet in plaster molds, careful not to dislocate the knees or twist an ankle. Toes often break. I cut even the shortest hair, tie a ribbon around it. Some nurses do face imprints, but I cannot. I picture the eyes meeting the force of plaster. I cannot. I help the parents discover if it's a boy or a girl. A defined gender means we can write one more detail in the medical record. Remains can be buried if the parents choose to arrange it. The other option is cremation at a funeral home or incineration within the hospital along with all other hospital waste. This can be a tough choice depending on the parent's situation or even state laws surrounding these scenarios. In some states, fetuses over 16 weeks cannot be incinerated in a hospital. The cost of burial or cremation further complicates the choice. In more compassionate communities, funeral homes refuse to accept a dime from parents who have lost their child. In other communities, it is impossible to find even one funeral home with this approach to miscarriage, charging hundreds, even thousands of dollars to care for remains. When the funeral home does pick up remains, they arrive and leave with a faux leather coffin the size of a shoebox. Invariably, the coffin is black. They carry it out by a handle, making it look like a briefcase. Only the hospital staff understand the difference. I have signed release forms for this pickup, watched the disguised casket swing with the same rhythm as a cradle, all the way down waxed linoleum hallways. Often, mothers request photos in which they are holding the baby. Their faces are swollen from crying, bent down, gazing at their child. Sometimes mothers choose to look right at the lens, even making an effort to smile. Thank you, Ruth. You are tuned into a special presentation of Sitka Tells Tales and Writers Read here on Raven Radio. We've heard from three writers and have two more to share. Next is Zach Schaefer. Sometimes on a boat, sometimes on an island, maybe up in the Alpine, perhaps in a field, likely in a parking lot, on a dock, skittering and stuttering on some patch of land. Zach writes and he roams around. Having lived in many different places, Zach's writing looks at what it is to be human, how we are inhabited by the places we live, and how we are all far more alike than we are different. My name is Zach. I'm going to read a few poems for you today. First poem is called Kaguantan and the Fullness of Dark. If I think with specificity on the details of my life, I am unable to keep from the pale of sadness, the dull tooth of disappointment. If I am able to consider my life as just that, a life, I find small openings to all that is lovely about being alive. I walk down a small street, well past nights engulfing dark, looking at the assortment of houses. 
I do not think of the sorrows that surely live behind quietly glowing panes. The house is a light. It is a container of life. I do not think of the pains behind our sorrows. I am in a body. This body is on a small street. It is moving along through the dark, awash in pools of spilled light. Some of these houses are beautiful, with small mud rooms for sodden coats and soiled shoes. Some of these houses are proud of their wooden body, peeling paint unable to hide their raw luster. None of these houses are mine, though I need not dwell on this fact of dwelling. This is a planet on which there exist houses. Inside houses there exist people. Inside people there exists a heart. And inside this heart there exists many chambers, always at least one which is full. This poem is called, The Sky Was Pink With Cold. I have maligned my tiny wood stove, and now it refuses to heat. Smoke. Smoke pours from the cracks in its chimney. Water pools on its iron top from its incomplete connection to the outside world. And so I say I need to remove it, all of it, from the ceiling down to the stove. Remove it and start again, with proper pipes fitted in size to keep smoke and water always out. Nothing. I know nothing of how to accomplish this. Which portion of pipe to insulate? Where to place a damper? How to pick a chimney that can withstand so much rain? Even this morning, the stove struggling to light, I pulled the computer from my backpack, left on last night's wooden floor, uninsulated and without heat. The computer cooled so that when I asked it in the morning moonlight, asked it to bathe me in light, it icily refused. The wood in the tiny stove behind me, it cracks and chirps as it works its way to warm. The keyboard at my fingers, it still feels as though kissed by ice. Up above me, visible through the small, oddly shaped window, the moon sits, it's back to all that blameless space. This is called, I eat cheesesteak in a box Chevy to say thank you to black people in urban centers who save America, even though America continues to want them dead. Joy arrives and departs like a hummingbird in short, rapid bursts. Duration, a meager measure of delight. You get in your car after walking back from the store. Your upbringing mandates you park oceans away from entrance. Safe proximity for those who suffer on shaky legs. The short walk and the long cold arrives you to your car singing in frost. You start the car and turn the heat up. A few minutes later, a pinprick of joy. Doesn't this feel good? Warmth on singing skin? Isn't this joy? Or maybe you don't have a car and you have to walk to the store from an even further ocean away. But you have woolen socks and pants, a long sleeve shirt, even a coat filled with insulation. If you have a hood in which to burrow and your shoes still maintain traction, well, you have a short whelp of joy. Feel your legs under your torso, your head atop it all. Look at that view, your body, encased in protective layers. Okay, now remember how you screamed at your mother, lover, brother, friend? Remember the guilt or shame or piggish righteousness you felt? Where's the joy in that? A hot shower provides spreading calm. You begin to sing. Your throat rasped and husked, but with all that screaming you did. And in this wavering wake, the postscript of your joyless rage, you find yourself in brief possession of a singing voice you've never before had. The smoky, erotic voice of Memphis and Chicago and rocking chaired porch. Is this not joy to open your ragged throat and let it sing the blues? This is called, I got a pair of Patagonia shorts in the mail and all these suckers out here probably thought I couldn't look any cooler. After months of eating up to 36 eggs every 30 days, you stop and you only eat maybe an egg a week, maybe less. Then you start eating them again. You sit at a table. It could be small or large or neither. Maybe it is both. One of those tables with eaves or leaves or wings. Whatever it is we call the method of their expansion. 
and you listen to eggs chattering in your frying pan, and you choke on tears that just don't ever really come. You choke a lot on absence, disappearance. You see people walking away, leaves. You see people walking towards you, threats. So you look up at the sky and look over at trees and look down at your shoe-clad feet. Maybe you wear boots. And you find the perfect time to look at the approaching person, to nod or smile. Not too soon or else you're left staring at them, frightening them, but mostly yourself. And not too late or you miss the nod and the smile and a further annex yourself from humanity. You date women. Let's say you date women. Sorry to all you who date men. In this example, you date women. And you date women who are really beautiful and have just ethereal halo hair. And they treat you wonderfully and love you and they bring their spirit to you which they often carry in their body, so they bring that to you too. And they let you touch their body and allow you to think maybe you can feel or even see their spirit, and they give you no reason to distrust them. So of course you distrust them, and you become mean in your distrust and hurtful to their spirit, and they take then both their spirit and its housing from you, and they never talk to you again. You get obsessive about dualism and dichotomy, even as you try to further cleave yourself from dualistic notions of self and other. You think about the weight of absence, the choking obliteration of space. You see? The tears again, they choke you, but they aren't there. A spirit wraps his hand around your throat, sticks its fingers in your mouth, gags you, but nothing is there. And this is more obsession and dualism and trying to understand. Is there nothing there? Is the disquiet original to the mind or body? If you are of the earth, is the earth then also of you? How can you help? And how can you be helped? Please. So of course this experience of living is perhaps hell. And why you might surmise that is that Life and planet are so beautiful and choking, and we see each other, all these bodies and spirits, and yet we remain so frozen and alone. It is hell because we are all here together, and we can help each other, and we can feel closeness, and we can even touch our bodies together and feel the shimmer and suffering shudder of our spirits, yet we remain always just apart. I see the rays of the sun can even feel its warmth on my translucent skin, but never sun itself. It always dips below horizon, just as I rise. It is an effort to be understood, here, perhaps effort, there, over there, understanding. I walk the limited walkways of the island I currently wander, ocean and mountain, cloud, low though not depressive, cover peak of mountain. It is there, I cannot see it. The ground is damp, with every step a galloping spray of water leaps from the toe of my shoe. Unseen, a few hundred yards away from me, ocean breaks itself upon harbor rock, sending itself to mist. This is called, The Girl with Long Black Hair Draws For Me and From Me. Black raven upon frost-white white roof, though it is not black. Sun is high in the addicted sky, though it is coming down. Raven is brown and blood red. Raven is purple and luxuriously bruised blue. Sky is naked today, its erotic infinite belly stunned in the sun's hungry hands. We are all starved for touch, pandemic and rainforest, introvert, extrovert, drought, our skins, our lack of contact. Today I am not touched, no, though I am kissed. Ambling walks, I am no mountain climber, along ocean's edge, the sun so kind in its firing. This sun, even risen, failed to warm enough of this section of earth to allow raven's roof a retreat from its icing. Raven is black upon its frost-white surface. Raven is bruised purple. Raven is blood red. Sky is an addict. My mind sips at its narcotic nectar as though through a straw. Thank you, Zach, for your poems and to all of you listening for tuning in to writers sharing on Sitka Tell's Tale right here on KCAW. We have one more piece of writing to share coming from Brendan Jones. 
Born in Colorado, raised in Philadelphia, Brendan Jones attended Columbia and Oxford universities. He's broadly published and as well is a carpenter and commercial fisherman. His most recent novel, Whispering Alaska, was just published. He lives in Sitka with his wife and three daughters. Welcome, Brendan. So this is a story that is actually from a year that my family and I spent in the town of Irkutsk in Siberia. And we took our dog there, our dog Colorado, who I had had for, I guess, about 15 years. And funny thing, he was actually part Siberian husky. So we kind of had this idea that he'd be going home and Burgess warned us. He said the dog will be going there, but he probably won't be coming back. And he was right. So... Fair warning, this is a little bit of a sad one, but it's certainly heartfelt. It's called Losing a Dog in Siberia. In the dark of morning, Haley pulls on her snowsuit, mittens, and balaclava on the trip to school. She kisses Colorado, our husky lab mix, rubbing the pink spot on his nose for good luck, and steps into the stairwell of our Stalin-era building. Rachel holds open the steel door, pulling down the balaclava for a kiss goodbye. The air in the stairwell smells of loose black tea leaves and yeast from the Cassis bread factory across the Angara River. We have been here since September when the snow started, and I have yet to get used to this cold. The nights here warmer than the days, a meteorological quirk I appreciate during 2 a.m. walks with Colorado, who turned 15 last month and needs to go outside every few hours. I set Haley on my shoulders, already feeling the prickly sensation of ice forming in my beard. To the east, above a fire-damaged log cabin, a band of cobalt marks the rising sun. Irkutsk, a town noted for its sable furs and buryette culture, grown up along the curve of the Angara River, is largely populated by former prisoners sent east to the gulags. Locals call Siberia's largest city Middle-earth. After six months here, through the better part of winter, I've started to understand why. Across the street, a trolley rumbles past, sparks from the overhead electrical lines light up the shop window. It's the two, not ours. Haley swings her legs from the bench, exhausts from the Ladas and Land Cruisers tear apart in the headlights. In Alaska, she has her own deer skinning knife. As we boned out the creatures, she picked leaves from their eyelashes, cooing as she ran the blade along the muscle, humming, mmm, eager to cook up backstrap. When we sent our barred rock chickens to freezer camp, as Rachel called it, Haley accepted that we leave our earth bodies and allow our soul to lift into the sky. Still, Rachel and I decided against telling her that her dog would not be there when she returned from school. The trolley appears, an inverted halo floating around a curve, its feeble headlamp pushing through the car exhaust. The ground beneath us shakes. Haley grips the metal poles and pulls herself aboard. 
A pale-eyed teenager wearing headphones and a hooded sable coat stands and motions to a shellacked wooden seat. Sadis, she says, and mutters spasiba, as Haley uses the heel of her hand to rub a porthole in the frost to see outside. With the lurch, we move into the dark. Fifteen years earlier, as we were leaving a dog rescue in Swansea, New Hampshire, my mother pointed to the back of the run. Look, the quiet one. A lean, cream-colored shepherd of some sort, streaked with gold along his back, stared over the backs of the other dogs. His nub of a tail twitched. He had come just a few days before from Bloomington, Indiana, where they regularly put down dogs, the young volunteer told us. I took him out to the dog run. To my great pleasure, he refused to play fetch, just clenching the ball between his jaws and inspecting me with his dark eyes. Back inside, a passing kid pulled the dog's ears. Are you kidding, the volunteer said, disgusted at my hesitation. This dog is like one in a million. I named him Colorado after my birthplace. We finished out the year in New Hampshire, where I had a job timber framing, then drove to Ann Arbor, where I worked carpentry and wrote, and then Philadelphia, where we lived for six years, rebuilding a row home in South Philly, at times without running water and electricity. Finally, we headed home to Alaska. On fishing boats, he hung out in the forecastle, the bow of the ship, panting when the seas got rough. His puppyish blonde eyelashes shortened, the pads of his paws smoothed with hikes into the mountains. Even the pink of his nose appeared a shade lighter, too much nuzzling, Rachel joked when she first met him. We had one, then two girls before I applied for a Fulbright grant to research my book. And as we prepared to go to Siberia, the question of Colorado came up. I suggested that a voyage across the world would be too hard on him. Rachel shook her head, already Googling service dog certification. Our veterinarian in Sidka, an eccentric sea cucumber diver named Burgess Bowder, swore he was part Siberian husky. He'll be returning to his roots, but listen, guy, don't expect him to come back. The handsome ticket collector in a hedgehog fur hat looms over us. Dengi, he snaps, his winter chapped lips parting to reveal ragged butterscotch teeth. Haley hands him 15 rubles. He examines the coins with great care finally smiling at her. The machine around his neck nickers away as it spits out a receipt. Spasiba, Haley says, slipping the ticket into her pocket in case the control came through. We rumble past Carl Mark Street. Sequins on Haley's hat catch the rising sun, freckling the sable fur of the teenager who stands now beside us. The Russians, especially the woman, expressionless and generous. Haley has enlarged her circle in the frost to a rectangle. Log cabins sinking back into the earth whiz by, the windowsills often beneath the level of the sidewalk. At the central market, the trolley jolts to a stop. A man in a dark leather jacket sends blue clouds of cigarette smoke from his nostrils between bites of a shiny breakfast bun. Poppy, Haley nudges, I spy with my little eye. Devi, I say, as she arranges herself on my lap. The female driver announces cognettes at the end of the line. I send Haley hood over her balaclava. Slip mittens over her cotton gloves. Give her chapped lips a shot of a special Siberian cream without water, which could freeze the skin. Back in our apartment, I greet the veterinarian who sits at our kitchen table drinking black tea with Rachel, a young bald man whose ashy fleece vest gives him the look of a raven. We've moved Colorado's bed from the living room to our bedroom. Generally, this would annoy him, but today he doesn't seem to mind. The vet appears beneath the arch. He stutters, switching from English to Russian and back. As we crouch, Colorado doesn't lift his head. The vet inserts a needle, and it plunges easily, the clear liquid dumping into his veins. Colorado looks up, this time at Rachel, who looks away. This, this one, the vet says, will put him into the night. 
or, he says, correcting himself, the twilight. Mountains in New Hampshire and the sun setting caught in a snowstorm. Colorado curled at the bottom of my sleeping bag, keeping my feet warm. A rest stop in North Dakota, letting me use his haunches as a pillow. Years before I knew Rachel. His head on the windowsill as we drove my truck through New York's Chinatown, tracking this world of new smells, carrying him in my arms to our cabin in the Poconos, pulling porcupine quills from his snout with needle-nose pliers and from his black gloves, waiting patiently beneath the scaffold in Alexandria as we finished building a cornice, how one afternoon in Oakland he wouldn't let Rachel out of his sight, following her onto the deck, resting his jaw on her stomach when she lay down on the carpet because her back hurt and because he knew she was pregnant way before me. Using the palm I press, his lips curl for a moment and his eyelids lower, the vet busies himself with a third vial. After pausing to get to the bottom of my breath, I press, keeping hand on his chest, feeling his heart slow, and then stop. From yet another pocket in his vest, he produces two plastic trash bags tying a tight knot as if he's afraid the corpse might escape. I pay him 2,400 rubles. I have set aside about $36. He calls a taxi and I listen as he fights with the driver over the no pet policy. Yet, yes, it is a dog, but the dog is in a bag. The driver hangs up, curses, and the vet dials another company. That night, when Haley steps into the apartment, we stand waiting for her. She peeks into the living room, as she always does. Rachel takes her hand and leads her to the kitchen table. Baby, today Colorado left his earth body. He went into the sky, just like a deer or fish. Haley's face, still red from the cold, falls. Her big brown Sicilian eyes grow wide, and then she's crying, asking for her dog. Across the street from us, a woman sits beneath the blue umbrella, selling kvass, lightly fermented drink made from crusts of brown bread. It's the summer now, and Haley's jumping, her eyes wide with memory after a day at school. Dad, guess what happened today? I lost my balloon in the sky. Oh yeah, that doesn't sound fun, but it went up to Colorado. My heart seizes. She stares across the street, past the woman beneath the umbrella, and I know she's trying to remember it exactly. I talked to him, she said. You know what he responded? No, I say, trying to stop the oncoming trolley, because I want to hear every word. He said our earth bodies are good and that he misses us so much. The tramvai drifts to a stop in front of us, spraying up a curtain of pollen. Haley steps into it, straight through to the other side, pulling herself up by the pole into the car. The top she turns to me, just her, framed by doors, staring back. This girl of mine, self-assured and clear-eyed, waiting for me to catch up. Thanks, Brendan, and to all our writers for bringing Sitka Tells Tales and Writers Read to life on the radio. Thanks, Brooke, and also to the Sitka Soup and the Sitka Daily Sentinel for helping us get the word out. And thank you to all of you who have tuned in here on KCAW Raven Radio. Now, I'm very curious about what's ahead for Writers Read and how doing the show on the radio has piqued your interest in what could be ahead. Yes, thank you, Ellen. Well, yeah, first, I, I do want to say thank you to the writers, Catherine, Manoj, Ruth, Zach, and Brendan. And then thank you to Ellen for collaborating with Writers Read, helping us get the voices of these five local writers on the air. I want to reach out to you listeners if you not only enjoyed listening to the writers tonight, but are also a writer yourself, please reach out to Ellen or to myself. Ellen's going to share some contact information with us all shortly. And because Writers Read hopes to collaborate with Sitka Tells Tales again and to make more space for writers to share their work with each other and this wonderful listening community. So thanks 
Isaac and Alan. Yeah, but we just were talking about like the difference between like maybe live storytelling and writing and who we could maybe attract. Yeah, I think people are afraid. Well, you can speak better about this, Ellen, to tell stories sometimes, to get in front of an audience and tell a story. But the thing is, is that's what writers do. Writers are telling stories. They're sharing narratives. So I think the person who might be interested is someone who like has a story they want to tell, but is a little intimidated by this label storytelling, standing up there without their script in front of them. Then come as a writer, bring your script with you, bring your piece of writing and tell your story that way. This is an opportunity for you, you storytellers who call yourself writers. I love it. And because the live storytelling is like you never know what's going to exactly come out of your mouth. So it's a very different form, but similar because it's stories, but people are telling these stories that they've practiced, but they're not supposed to use their notes. But it's all the thing about getting stories out and listening to each other. And hopefully, as you heard tonight, we had quite a variety of writers from all different stages in their journeys as writers. Some folks who maybe have never shared their writing with an audience before, some folks who share their writing as part of their jobs. So so just a reminder, uh, reach out to Writers Read, reach out to Sitka Tells Tales, to Ellen or myself, wherever you are at your stage in the writing journey, we're looking for you. If you want to tell a story, if you have an idea for a theme and have feedback, please contact us via the artchangeinc.org website, via email at artchangeinc at gmail.com, or find Sitka Tales Tales on Facebook for updates and to message us. And please tune in on the first Tuesday of every month at 7 p.m. for our sister show, Our Grandparents' Teachings, hosted by Chuck Miller. Thanks again for being here with us. 